Hello, I'm Jake Lloyd and welcome to How to Build Community, a podcast and a radio show brought to you by Aruka Network. In this episode, we're hearing about the power of storytelling to heal and inspire people and communities. There is nothing as palpable and wonderful as sharing a story about our lives or telling a folktale that you know and not giving a moral or an explanation, but just seeing what it reminds other people of. That's the voice of Laura Sims, an award-winning storyteller from New York in the USA. And Laura has spent her career travelling the world and using stories to bring people together for all sorts of purposes, whether overcoming trauma, peace-building, women's issues, human rights, or inspiring young children. And in this interview you're about to hear, she covers all sorts of things like how stories help us develop empathy, what happens to a society that loses its interest in storytelling, the limitations of digital storytelling, and some tips for storytelling in your community. But I began by asking Laura how she first became excited by the possibilities of storytelling. Well, actually, it was quite a long time ago. And the initial inspiration, I can pinpoint a moment, but it was over a period of several years that it really gelled, was an accidental storytelling in Central Park. I dropped out of graduate school and I was going to take a year off. And um, I actually entered a theater company, kind of um, very contemporary experimental theater company at La Mama Theater. And I loved the director, and it was very unusual, and it really satisfied my interest in communication and literature and anthropology and meditation. But I quickly realized that everyone else in this company was a very experienced actor and belonged to a union and received, I don't know, five or $600 a week, which at the time was a substantial amount of money, and I got $32. <laughs> Mm. So I went to the director because I had given up my job as a roller skating waitress in a jazz club. <laughs> Very lucrative. So she said, well, you know, you would be great teaching children theater. But I, in truth, I really didn't know a lot about conventional theater. But I knew a lot of fairy tales and poetry. So I had a class which went on for five years of the children of quite well-known actors and actresses in the off-Broadway scene in New York, who came to my apartment at the time, a six-floor walk-up on East 94th Street. And we acted out fairy tales and then went at the end of this, um, the first year to Central Park to do a performance. And their parents, of course, were invited. And it was one of those rare days where in mid-April the sun just sort of cleared the air and lots of people were suddenly in the park and the parks department gave us chairs and they did their performance and everybody loved it and of course the parents wanted them to do it again and they saw themselves as professionals so they said Laura you do something in the middle and uh, I didn't know what to do because I had no scenes. I I'm, I'm, can't memorize anything. <laughs> so um, there was a Russian fairy tale that I loved, 
and now I've thought a great deal about this story, which was about a boy and a girl who lost their parents. Their parents died and they decided to walk across the whole world and never stop long enough to be unhappy. And I told this fairy tale, which lasted about 11 minutes. And all that we had been seeking in the experiments that we were doing in the theater of having no form, of physicalizing, of um, creating a kind of sacred ritual space, it seemed to take place in this event that I accidentally created in the park. And what fascinated me about it was that my relationship to the audience was so palpable and nobody moved for 11 minutes. When it was over, I thought to myself, I really need to explore how storytelling in traditional cultures existed because I understood from my reading and interest in anthropology and such that the enactment of myths and stories and the engagement of this kind was very, very important in stabilizing and renewing and bringing together or even transforming and working with conflict and so forth in community. And I had happened upon a, a visceral experience that I had no words for. So I never went back to graduate school, actually, because I went to the Museum of Natural History. And I really had a hundred questions. And I was given a job. The People Center began. And I was given a job in the People Center, which seemed enormous to me at the time and now seems very, very small. And being in this sort of round, uh, like almost cave-like space in which I told stories they would give me themes or cultures, and then I had access to these amazing people. And I had access to the library behind the library. And that private library was for researchers who, and it consisted of all the journals of missionaries and anthropologists and ethnologists and mythologists, geographers. And I would sit on the floor for five, six hours a day and read about stories and the role of storytelling and also became very aware of the opinion of colonial people on the stories, but could hear in these reports what the people themselves thought of the nature of language and thought of community and watched, um, <laughs> they arranged for me to watch a film, one of the early films made like in 1901 of a Blackfoot woman healing a very ill man through encanting uh, a myth. So I had this sort of rare and very rich immersion in something which changed my life. And it was as if I was in my own forest in a fairy tale seeking something. So I think I was very fortunate in all of this because I'm actually a kind of lazy person in a way. <laughs> And all of this began to um, give me access to the question I had of what happened between myself and the audience that very first day in Central Park. So that's the kind of background to this. And whenever I've needed it and I could do it, 
I've continued to study uh, modes of conflict resolution or working with community because I, at one point, actually it was after 9-11, I decided that I really had to put to test what I thought about storytelling and that I couldn't do it just by writing about it or studying. That had to be in the field. So I began working in various situations and exploring these aspects of the engagement process of reciprocal, dynamic, vivid, present, oral storytelling. So that's the way in which all of this began and continues. You've traveled the world with your storytelling and looking on your website, you've been to universities and zoos and theaters, playgrounds, <laughs> conferences, festivals, schools, corporate events, museums, um, and all over the world. Are there cultural differences that strike you in terms of how people engage with, engage with stories and the purpose of stories? Or actually, are we all just the same? <laughs> Well, I, I just don't think there's um, a black and white answer. I, I was once working with ex-combatants in the east of Nepal. And afterwards, they have this wonderful um, feedback loop where you look at what you've done and you talk with all the staff. And the director of the program had a piece of chalk in his hand with a big blackboard, and he wanted to list all the aspects of the stories and everyone's listening that was the common ground and so he went around you know asking some of the people who had been with me in the situation and a list was being made and then he asked me what was the common ground and I said I thought the common ground was that we all were listening and that the way in which each person hears a story and associates visualizes and emotionally feels about the story is often completely unique to that person, to their culture, to their life experience, to their, you know, sort of karmic makeup, who they are. And in some cultures, you really are, you've learned specific meanings at different levels, depending on who you are. But on the other hand, the process of visualizing and being in the story seems to, in the moment of listening, is a kind of loosening of one's own preoccupations and beliefs as one rampantly and with more ease imagines the story. And that's kind of the secret gem of what happens to people, that when you finish, you can listen to each other more fully. You've used storytelling for all sorts of different purposes, like healing and uh, reconciliation and peace building and things like that. I wonder what what it is that that storytelling can do that perhaps more traditional uh, peace projects or reconciliation projects can't do. What what is it? What is it about storytelling that uh, that has an advantage over over maybe more traditional reconciliation projects or uh, you know medical ways of working? Well, I think it's not that it's different, and sometimes it's supplemental, or sometimes it's the um, key 
that opens the door to something. First of all, we're talking about storytelling, and there's two main categories that um, I work with. There's lots of different kinds of stories. So there's the traditional story, which is a kind of engagement in a symbolic narrative. And then there's the retelling and also the listening to personal stories. So those are two very powerful streams. So I'm, I'm going to tell you a story of um, something that happened in Haiti, in a, a very difficult moment in a displaced person's camp outside of Port-au-Prince. And I was working with women, children, and adolescent girls in different sessions. But I was asked by an organization if I could record the stories of the women that I was working with. They had a wonderful, very resilient, supportive women's group. And over 200 women came together every Sunday. It was a remarkable woman who had sold um, cosmetics on the street, who rose to this position of leadership that she never suspected was part of her life. But I made this very organized schedule because how could I see so many women? And it was extremely hot. So I you know, had like 14 names every day on a chart, which in retrospect, I realized no one ever looked at. And one day I was there on my sort of three-legged chair, which leaned against um, one of the walls of a, a, a building that had not fallen during the earthquake. And of course, there were far more than 14 women and they were arguing and trying each one to make sure that they were heard because it wasn't that they so much wanted to tell their stories, they wanted to be heard. So I, I had three or four questions that I asked in the situation. But this particular day, um, someone else came running and called out to my translator that there were 75 women in this schoolroom. This was an international school that had been mostly demolished and there were a few buildings left standing and the camp occurred in the back of the school. And I was stunned. I folded up my chair. I, I, I had no idea why everyone was so angry at me, but it, of course it's very easy to be a target of the immense frustration. And there was so little that I could do to help people's everyday ordinary lives, really. Mm. So um, <laughs> I entered a room where everyone, arms crossed, legs crossed, sat on behind these wooden tables, looking really like stuck, like they had been pasted in a state of mind. And I knew many of these women, and I knew a lot about their frustration and their misery and actually their immense capacity for joy as well. But I, I didn't know what to do, and I thought to start a conversation about why they were angry at me, I didn't even think we had enough hours in the day or week to vent this, and I wasn't sure it would be helpful. And I said to my translator, who was a wonderful young woman, I don't know what to do. Hmm. This is some of my best moments, really. <laughs> <laughs> and she said, Laura, you should tell a story. 
And the night before, I had spoken to a Haitian French storyteller in Paris, um, asking her for some folk tales that I she felt were potent. And there was one that just it was like crawling up the back of my legs, called the bowl. And so I just started with the very traditional um, small village call and response creek, and like one woman said crack very low. And then I, but I had no alternative to, but to be fully in this. So I over and over again said crick until finally all the women sort of half laughing and, you know, burst through their apathy and rage and said crack. So I began this story and, um, the story, the translator was great. And whenever there was a refrain, like, they walk, she walked, she walked, she walked, elle marche, elle marche, elle marche. She sort of turned it into a song and all the women began to call and respond during the story. And the story, you know, one thing leads to another and this woman has stolen something that she won't let go of. And everything around her is telling her to let go of it. Her basket speaks, the rice speaks, the salt speaks, her clothing speaks, the water speaks. Finally, a friend's skin speaks. And she's so embarrassed by this, still all the time holding this bowl, that she ran back to the water where she had taken it from and jumped in. And then the water took her legs and was pulling her down and pulling her down and mm -hmm. pulling her down. And finally, she repeated what all of these objects had said to her, which is, it's not my bowl. And she let go and the water let her let go. And she got out of the water and she collected all her things and the bowl remained on the water so everyone, everyone, everyone could drink. Mm. And everyone was involved in this story. In fact, the energy that broke through, and this is, um, there's so many things about it, but it, the story narrative caught everybody up in something outside of their preoccupation and relieved them of this rage and frustration, which was so understandable. And um, at the end of it, they were there, and you could feel as if the air itself had changed. And who knows what each person imagined, felt, associated about the stealing, about losing things, about things speaking, some of these women grew up, you know, with their mothers being Vudun, Mambos, priestesses. Other of them were very religious. Um, whatever it was, they, they were fully um, engaged in something. And it was also a shared story that they all had. Mm. And a very old woman at the back just looked at me and she said, Laura. <laughs> And she was the oldest woman in the camp, and she lifted her shoulders, and she just started moving toward me. And my translator just pushed me, and so I mimed her dance. And then everyone started laughing because it was me always looking disheveled in the camp, and these women who always looked so well put together, even though they lived in tents. And this old woman and I, and then everybody got up, and we sort of had a procession out of the room, back into the rubble, chatting with each other. And I said, shall we meet again tomorrow? 
and sort of glanced at my strange list of organization on the wall that I had superimposed. <laughs> I thought I should let go of it like the ball. And then the next day we met. They just I just asked them basically the next day if they had a better idea of what questions they wanted me to ask and how I could organize it and how we could do it. And they came up with a plan that was much smarter than mine and allowed everyone to hear each other. And then if people wanted to speak to me privately, there was a, a period of time people could come. And, and I, I was sort of astonished by this. We never discussed why they had been so angry at me. It was almost irrelevant. What really happened is that this narrative engagement replaced this glue-like um, commitment to frustration and relieved them. So there's that. And I can give you a hundred examples, and it's not always, not always happening in that particular way, but hundreds of examples of people coming together in a way inside the story that then also settles the mind. There's a mind-body synchronization. So they can actually listen to each other. And um, I mean, for, for your African audiences, there was a very great statesman um, in Mali, Amadou Hampate Ba, very famous in Africa because he's the one who said when an old man dies, each time an old man dies, a library is burned. And he wrote a great deal about oral tradition. And I learned a great deal from his writings and people who knew him at UNESCO. It's this kind of using traditional folk tales that then can be talked about, not necessarily to come up to a solution, but how different people viewed the story, how they found themselves in the story. But also there's that quality of listening together and imagining so that you're not just stuck in your head and is, is there something important about being uh together when when you listen because obviously you know i can sit at home and read a read a novel and read a story on my own is is uh is there something about that that togetherness that's that's very important then well of course it's the beautiful question because in a sense any peacemaking or any um reconstruction of conversation or harmony has to do with people being able to be together and recognize that no one sees the same or feels the same or even understands something in the same way. It's a kind of poignant humor of reality. Also, there is then a, an expanded energy of being present together. It's an energetic experience as well as a, a mental, um, physical, and emotional experience when you're listening. There's an energy of it, and it's deepened. When, when I have people telling stories about their own lives, I don't always go for the most um, crucial or difficult or traumatic moment in their life. I might work with images, places that they recall, and from this place that's not focused on the trauma, they, I take them through a series of, you know, listening, telling a story and 
often working in pairs, so you're listening to each other and hearing the other person's story. It's a whole process, which is, you know, it's too long to go into. It's, it's not really complicated. But before I ask them to talk about something that might be really difficult and sometimes dangerous for people to talk about, because there's a tremendous fear that might rise up or you don't know the ramifications of telling your story always to a stranger. And in some places, to tell a personal incident to a stranger is unheard of. You just don't do that culturally. Mm. But it's more about almost like I'm distilling essential oils from the petals of a flower. It's the oil that is alive, that has the medicine in it. So in the telling and the listening to each other, very often you can... You can actually hear your own story. And I always want to give people a place to begin, which is before that trauma. And then somehow that they can see that it's possible that there'll be a time when the trauma is not the only thing in their lives. Because very often the focus is so much on this terrible event, which is truly terrible. Um, So to understand that you can... You have, other, you have other aspects of mind that are untarnished by what has occurred. And yeah. so able to speak from that place, you can respect and regard the incident that occurred, but it doesn't have to be the only story in your life. And in fact, you can even find a medicine or gold Inside of that terrible situation, I don't mean that one should seek out those terrible situations, but the wakefulness, the resilience, the question I was in situations was, was there something that you gained from the earthquake and in your new life? And for the women in Haiti, for instance, very often they said, well, we didn't know we had this strength or in the evenings we cook together and talk and I was very isolated in my house or I, I didn't realize that I could live with so little and come look at my tent. So I, I hope I'm answering these questions in a way that is helpful to other people. Yeah, I think so. I think so. Um, I, I was watching an interview with Barack Obama that was towards the end of his presidency and someone had asked him, uh, what he'd learned about about leadership um, during his time. And he said uh, something along the lines of, sometimes it's tempting as a, as a kind of leader to think that people are motivated by concrete incentives like like money or security or power and things like this. But what, what he'd learned during his time was that actually one thing that really motivates people is stories. And um, a good story inspires people to to do great mm-hmm. things and in terms of the USA he he used the declaration of independence and the founding story of America as um an example of something that inspires people to do great things is is that your is mm-hmm. that your experience as well because you've talked about stories there um as a way to heal and mend things that are perhaps broken in society or in people's lives but can stories also Um, inspire people to to do great things oh absolutely another use of narrative of course is to 
generate genocides, these sort of false narratives, because an image is so powerful. So the storyteller has to be quite responsible. But yes, I mean, this a beautiful story about someone who has done something in their life, like the story of Malala, the story of Nelson Mandela, the story of, um, I'm not going to get her name correct, the woman who planted all the trees and got a Nobel Peace Prize. Mm. These stories are, are like the great epics of the world where there is a hero or heroine who has some kind of um, quality that develops over their lifetime in which they can offer something for the benefit of others. And it uplifts people. It wakes up that place of courage inside, especially if one recognizes that the best person you can be is who you are. So in, in studying actually with the constellation, the wonderful mediation and um, community engagement process, they always start by asking people what their strengths are. So if you're, you know, regardless of how small or how large that strength is, you tell the story of some way in which that strength has served you or others, whether you're very funny or you're strong or whatever it is that you have, you're a good leader or you're very kind or you're a great cook, um, you have this capacity to um, talk to trees, I, I don't know. Um, great garbage collection and whatever it is mm. that it's it's it uplifts us because we who listen the secret of a great storyteller is that you know that everyone is not listening as if this is really about me or about Mandela what's really happening is because to listen is to imagine you become everything in that story so in a sense, that part of you is awakened in the listening. I mean, we all know about sitting around with a group of people and you feel like, you know, five minutes has passed, but you feel like you've been sitting there for an hour and it's like, you think, I wish I could get out of here. This is so boring. And then all of a sudden, somebody tells a story, a real story. And you could be sitting there for three hours and it feels like five minutes. It reminds me of, I'd read recent scientific studies by neurologists uh, showing that the, the human brain, when it's told a fact, like one part of the brain activates. But when it's told a story, the brain behaves as if it's experiencing the story for itself. So if I were to describe to you walking along a beach and the sound of the waves crashing on the shore, then the parts of your brain that processes sounds will activate or if I describe walking through a forest and the smell of the pine trees, then the part of your brain that um, deals with smells will activate. And yeah, so the, the, the brain behaves or inhabits the story, um, which I guess sounds like it's been your experience over your career as well. Yeah, and also, I mean, I'm not an expert on brain science, um, but the neuroplasticity of the brain is... Um, what gives us new possibilities. But these are experiential things. They're not explanations. An explanation 
sort of rests on you and then the wind blows it away, like, you know, going on a perpetual diet for 35 years every day, today I'm going to do it. But what is it that changes us is in the listening where, um, I think I said it earlier, where a sort of projection, what you're talking about, the projection into the experience, which is sensory, all five senses are aroused and engaged. So that's a kind of enlivening. And that experience itself loosens our fixed belief systems and allows us to feel. And we may be feeling, we don't know how anybody else is feeling, but we're sitting in a room with five people or a hundred people of different ages and everyone is having an experience together. And that experience is the experience of um, allowing us to have more flexibility of mind. Does it make us more, uh, give us more empathy and more of an ability to, to relate to others and understand others, do you think? Well, I think it does, because if you can first be back in your own body and you can have empathy for yourself and you can recognize the feeling without being triggered into um, an old habit that then you when you're more familiar with that over time you recognize that this is happening to everyone and you do have more empathy mm. but you have to wake up the place in which we experience and feel you know sort of perception and emotion beyond thought so that the world doesn't change around us, but our relationship to it is changed by the listening process. And, you know, obviously, you listen to one story and you think, I feel great, I will never do blah, blah, blah again, and then you walk out and you do it. So it is, um, it does take some strengthening and familiarity with that place of the mind. So in a culture where you're listening to stories more often, that place is more nurtured. You've talked a bit about oral tradition and um, people gathering together and, and sharing stories. I wonder with the digital revolution and the internet and all these things, are things changing? For example, I had an advert pop up on my, um, on my computer today about digital storytelling. Do, is, is the internet changing how we tell stories and for better or worse for me it's important to discern i have nothing against digital storytelling but that's what it is it's digital storytelling it's not um storytelling in the present between people it's a different form of creating a narrative that has a different benefit and different relationship you're eyes and the muscles in your eyes watching the screen are less apt to develop a profound and subtle imaginative palette. Um, you may be informed and feel and share something and it's very emotional, it's very beautiful, but it's a different quality or different state of mind that is aroused in digital storytelling. I, I you know, obviously I love the ability to text and send notes and speak to you and, you know, speak to kids in India or Romania or, you know, South America, Haiti, my friends all over the world. That's great. It's not the same as 
being in a community and sharing stories one-on-one. And the soundbite idea of personal story wrapped into a few words can be very dangerous. One, it can, if children are not exposed to actual language and story and engagement, they may lack emotional intelligence completely because that aspect of the muscles and the eyes and the mind and the heart are not engaged in the same way. So I think we have to become bilingual or bi-narrative and that in a way the act of telling a story is a restoration of aspects of the mind that are needed for us to live with each other. Otherwise, um, can be very isolated and um, lack genuine empathy. Laura, I've, ta- I've taken up quite a lot of your time, so I'll, I'll just ask a, a couple more questions, if that's okay. No, um, no. For, for people listening to this who would like to use storytelling in, in, their, in their community for healing or reconciliation or justice or resistance or or whatever, what's the best place to start? What are the, uh, the nuggets of wisdom you would share with people? <laughs> well, there are two things. And one is um, I very often tell people to think of an incident in their childhood, a place they really, really liked in their childhood where they felt safe, and then think about what that place looked like and then what happened in that place and share it with someone else. Don't explain that you liked it or this means that and because of this that happened. But simply bring the place alive for someone else as if their life depended on it. And ask them what they heard, not what they think it means. Because we love to hear the stories about each other's lives. Even the story of what happened today. And then also, you know, for you know, your audiences in other cultures, the folk tales, the small um, anecdotal wisdom stories and folk tales, which are so um, potent, are like um, deep wells. And sometimes, you know, just sharing a story. I had um, a minister from a church in Hawaii take a course this summer and He chose a story to work on from the Arabian Nights, actually, a story that's probably known in, you know, uh, cultures all over the world, particularly Muslim cultures, uh, the fisherman and his wife. And as we worked on this story, he's been writing me to tell me how he, in every Sunday sermon, he sometimes doesn't talk about the Bible at all, but tells a folk tale. And he's asked the people in his community to tell him Tongan and Hawaiian and Maori stories and bring them to him. And how much they love listening to these stories together and then look at what's inside the story and how they feel. So I think one of the things is that it's important to recognize that you tell a story about yourself you're not that child now, you are an adult. So I usually tell a story in the past tense. When I was six years old and growing up in Brooklyn, I loved to play in the mud with my friends. And then something about that truth 
of my sharing something and telling it to you as an adult allows us to see this child and become this child and not separate and just witness me, but there's something that happens between us, which then evokes so many memories. I mean, Bhutan, they say one story leans on another. You know, if I told you this whole story of what happened where we tried to dig to China in my friend Leah's backyard under the apple tree <laughs> and then covered ourselves in mud because I forgot what my mother told me was that you can get sick from mud. It was the polio summer. Um, and it's kind of zany but wonderful story. Afterwards, I could sit somewhere for hours because it reminds people of something they did in their own childhood. Mm. And also it reminds them of small incidents that we don't think, some people, I don't have a story, says somebody. Or, oh, my life is so uninteresting. But it's not true. Our lives are endlessly extraordinary. And I think it's a way we get to know each other. We offer something. If I'm in um, really a different cultural situation, I very often tell a story about my childhood or about my life or something that happened on the street in New York as a way of people being able to be with me. And I'm not there as someone who has information to give them, but I'm there because we're going to collaborate on something. And I have first to offer myself. And also it allows people to talk about their own lives, to remember um, what it was like 10 years ago, what it was like 30 years ago in their village, and find a way to tell the story that is not about regret or complaint, but bring to life an incident and just share it and see what happens. People actually love that mm. and respect you for being able to bring them um, into a situation to like you said, to bring you into the pine forest where there's wind and smell. And we are reminded, in a sense, of the essentials of being a human being. Laura, I think that's a good place to leave it. Is there anything else you'd like to add? Well, I think what you said just warms my heart. And in these particular times, there is nothing as palpable and um, wonderful as sharing a story about our lives or telling a folktale that you know that you heard as a child or you heard in some situation and not giving a moral or an explanation, but just seeing what it reminds other people of. And before you tell it, visualize the place in which the story, see what you can visualize of that story so that your eyes are awake with this kind of ephemeral picture that you're making in the story. You know, a woman went every day to a meadow to plant seeds, and she carried a baby on her back. So you see it and you feel it while you tell it slowly. <laughs> mm. why, why do you say uh, don't give a moral or ex explanation? Because then we undermine the experience that one has had, mm. and we leap up into our brains in, and have this kind of mental security of, oh, this is what it means. And then there's a right story. 
hmm. one single right story or one way to look at something, which is how we got into this terrible dilemma we're in in the first place. <laughs> and, and I think it's very hard for some people to, I mean, uh, to give up this sense of, well, this means that if the story, if truly we are engaged in the story, and we are becoming both the perpetrator and the victim or the man and the woman or the child and the old person or the fish and the rabbit, then we actually are experiencing the cause and the consequences of activities internally. And then to apply on top of that what you think is right undermines the inner capacity that has been developed to actually recall and understand causes and consequences of behaviors. Mm. Because rules don't do that much for us. <laughs> Unless we have some real experience of different ways in which um, the context of situations. Otherwise, we have only prisons because one person is bad and the other person has to keep them contained as opposed to understanding the plasticity of mind and the fact that we can, each of us, access some goodness inside of ourselves and also experience each other with empathy, even if we don't agree with them. Can I just ask, what, um, <laughs> what, what is a story? <laughs> That's the question, isn't it? <laughs> I, I think it's the event that happens between the listener and the teller. I think it's more than the sum of its parts. And it's a, a structure that we enter, like a, it's a, a living place that we enter. And it's larger than just the story. It's something that is deeply personal and at the same time it's very transpersonal. But um, Jean Sviedak, a great French um, thinker who was the secretary at UNESCO for 35 years, asked me this question once. We were sitting in the um, Musée de l'Homme, Paris, and he said to me, Laurel, what is a story? And I went off on some long, rambling <laughs> answer, and I realized he was not really <laughs> listening to me. And I thought myself, I said, so Jean, what is a story? And he said, it depends who hears it. <laughs> mm. I think we know when it's a story and we know when it's not a story. Because it is an experience, it's not information. That was the voice of Laura Sims, an award-winning storyteller from New York City. And you can learn more about Laura's work on her website. That's laurasims.com. But that's almost it for this episode. Before we go, I will remind you that you can catch up on previous episodes of How to Build Community on our SoundCloud page or in your podcast player. Just search How to Build Community Aruka Network. And Aruka is spelt A-R-U-K-A-H. You can also learn more about us on our website, arukanetwork.org. And finally, if you have feedback on this show, or suggestions for a future interview, then you can reach me via email jake at arukanetwork.org. I would love to hear from you. But until next time, bye for now.